Welcome to Monster Porn, Weird Fiction and Horror Podcast. The podcast you're going to wish wasn't found in your download history 20 years from now. Joel Osteen. Today's story is The Horror at Cool Balat by me, Brett Norwood. Good Friday. Friday? Uh, I'm used to saying Monday, I guess. Yeah. That's right. Welcome to this surprise, not Monday, bonus episode of Monster Porn. I was surprised. How, Brett? You wrote the episode. I know. That always surprises me. <laughs> Matt, you saw the awesome sculpture of our iBat from our logo, the Critter. That was made by Slevin Calabra on Twitter. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. What's the matter, Brett? You don't know how to pronounce uh, Slevin Calabra? <laughs> I have no idea how to say that either. Anyways, uh, the sculpture was awesome. I would love to have an address someday for you guys to send that stuff. There is nothing cooler than seeing our Monsterbaiters artistic interpretations of our characters. Y'all can get a load of Slevin Calabra's Calibra's iBat sculpture on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And I'd love to see more art. Be sure to share your work with us if the artistic inspiration hits you. Do we have any other news, Matt? Oh, no, not really, other than this show grows and succeeds because of you guys, the monster baiters out there who listen and promote us on social media. If you love what we do, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review so other future monster baiters can find us. If you know weirdos who are almost as weird as you, word of mouth is also something that this show depends on. Anyway, I think that's it for now. Uh, enjoy the bonus episode of Monster Porn. Hey, Matt. Hey, Brent. What's going on? I need to be more depressed. Is that... Is that possible? Halloween season is coming up and we need horror stories, but I'm not in that bleak, despairing mood necessary for the composition of truly troubling horror fiction, Matt. Things have been too positive lately, and the weather's too nice, and I don't feel nearly as alone and isolated as I should... Worst of all, I may have been lulled out of my deep-seated mistrust and disgust at the reality of the universe. I need to consult the river beast. You're going to ask a mythical river creature for the secret to being more sad? Cheaper than a therapist, and therapists have this indoctrinated idea that you should only leave more positive than when you entered. Very close-minded. Besides, I don't believe in therapists. You don't believe in therapists? Yeah, doesn't it strike you as odd that the photographs are always blurry and that no one has ever seen them in the same room as Bigfoot? Uh, okay, we're digressing. Are you telling me you don't have a story ready because you're not miserable enough to write horror? Yes, exactly. How do you get yourself into the right mindset for writing horror? What's your secret? How do you make your soul bleak enough? Do you go to the parents' night at the orphanage? Do you break out the scratch-and-sniff Holocaust photos book? Or do you try to wash the scrambled eggs off of a plastic spatula? No, I don't do anything special to get depressed before I write horror. Then how do you engender that fundamental feeling of unease and loathing and disgust? I work with you. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I'm starting to feel in the right place for writing horror now. 
Here we go. I've talked down jumpers and I've negotiated with hostage takers. And I've even tried to reason with a guy who went postal in the workplace at the same time he was pouring bullets into his coworkers. I didn't think that I'd ever be the person in charge of trying to de-escalate the fucking apocalypse. The research team belonging to the government contractor called Huron Lake was at Coolbalat. I was called into the regional bureau field office and watched over live satellite feed with the regional director, his secretary, and some crisis personnel and technicians. On the big monitor, there was a fixed interior shot from three quarters above of an enclosed stone space. There was a curtain set up to the left-hand side separating some instrumentation and computers from the rest of the chamber. Three researchers and three private guards were in frame, generally listless, as if waiting for the all-clear to act on some predefined plan. There should have been two more researchers. In the middle of the room, and central to all of the people involved, there was a stone box littered with a stone slab. The box appeared to be of one piece with the bedrock into which the whole cavern had been hewn by ancient human hands. The lid had four horns, one at each corner, of one piece with the lid. On the other side of the curtain, partially visible to the camera, another identical curtain was laid out on the floor, intimating a supine human shape, a dab of red seeping through at the heart and again at the head. I had been briefed, hastily, an hour ago over Keurig coffee and Ralph's bakery donuts in a trailer outside on the situation and to the research inasmuch as my need-to-know permitted. The thing I remember most about the briefing was the potbelly drawing. A silly thing to be the one thing that I remember clearly about the briefing, but there was something disgusting about the facsimile taken from the engraving on the stone lid, not visible in the lighting of the camera feed. The Irican Island tribesmen, in feather skirts, with their ignoble potbellies and grotesque bowl cuts, shaking spears at the image of the box itself. Yeah, the box itself was depicted on the lid of the box, but thankfully for the sanity of the ancestral Irican stone carvers, you couldn't see the engraving that was on the lid, engraved on the lid, because that's where the human sacrifice was depicted. Over the engraving of the lid, there was a picture of a girl getting disemboweled by priests in feathered headdresses. That was the custom. Every year at the solstice, the Irican Islanders sacrificed a girl who was about to reach puberty on the stone slab. They had to do this, they said, or else the temptation wouldn't leave them alone that year. You see, they blamed the perverse fascination, an unshakable and supernatural obsession, really, with opening the box on the lack of spilled blood. Without the death of a virgin, they believed. The unbidden desire to open that forbidden box would be overwhelming. The willpower it apparently took to deny that urge for the course of the year would distract the tribe's people from absolutely every business. The crops would suffer. The markets would grow stale. Fuck. They'd forget to fuck. They'd stop making babies, which in turn created a shortage of virgins to slaughter on future solstices. Suicide was historically rare in pre-modern cultures, according to one psych textbook or another in my school years. But these Irican tribesmen said that in a year that the blood price wasn't paid, thanks to the stubbornness of a king who wished to be regarded as morally superior to the barbaric sacrifices, 
A number of men committed suicide by dashing their brains on the rocks just to be rid of this sick compulsion to open the damn thing. And Lord, if that's true, it's a goddamned miracle that thing was never opened in the three millennia that the Irican Islanders were its custodians. And what happened if someone opened the box? The legend was vague on that point. Maybe it wouldn't be the fucking apocalypse anyway, but... Now, after what had happened, all of our minds were going right to the worst of the worst. Superstitious would be an understatement for what we all were all of a sudden. So maybe that sets up the situation here. Anyway, that's about all I got in addition to some personal details on the people on the ground before I was thrown into it. Mackenzie was a father of two. Montoya, the linguist, was a world-class chess player. Paulson had just got engaged to a physician's assistant in D.C. Sarah Solomon was single. Milovich was dead. None of them wanted to talk of their own accord at this point. The chamber was brooding. It would be another 40 minutes before the drone arrived, which was a mostly useless insurance policy, since you couldn't fly it in the door and bombing indiscriminately could just as well blow the lid off the thing. We'd have some more boots on the ground when the extraction team landed, but we didn't want them anywhere near the thing either, or else we'd have the same problem all over again, probably. Further, the crisis team had so far failed to talk them into setting out for the extraction point. Cue me. Now, the first rule of my job is that you try to keep the persons involved mindful of a good reason not to do what they're about to do. Adam, I said to Mackenzie. You've got a son and daughter, correct? He didn't look at the overhead camera, but the room mic picked him up. Two daughters, he said. I'd made the mistake on purpose to get him engaged. Right, right, I said. Hey, I'm just wondering if, uh, you want me to get any message out to them, to your daughters? I love them, he said automatically, without any particular feeling. Well, do, I said. And then, well, we're going to get you guys home as quick as we can, so I'd like to also tell them that you're going to be on your way home soon. He made a noncommittal noise and nodded yes. His hands were on his hips, and he had taken back up staring at the lid. That's how they all were. They all tried very hard not to look like they were concerned with it until you suggested they were leaving without touching it. And then they fixated on it like a cat hunting a bird through the glass. That's Detroit, right? I said. There was a long pause. Only very little of it was delay. What? No, 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 no. Chicago, he said slowly. Your kids in school, Adam? I don't see what that has to do with anything, he said like a zombie. Oh, nothing really, I admitted. Just made me think of my little girl, not a little girl anymore, actually. And how those early years are some of the best memories. If only they could be that age forever, right? Exhausting as it can be. I forced what I thought was a passably natural laugh. Hey, I also need to know that Sarah's okay, I said. Is she there with you guys? No one looked at the camera. No one volunteered an answer, but I heard, after a moment, a woman's voice from off camera. I'm here. I'm okay. I'm by the crate. Well, I'm tied to the crate. Any injuries, Sarah? I asked. No, she said simply. Paulson, I said next. How long you known Adam? Paulson also took his time answering, 
In the meantime, a rent-a-soldier paced in and out of frame, brandishing his assault rifle, boots clacking on the bedrock and echoing in the chamber. Since college, sir, Paulson answered. Nick, isn't it? Yes, sir. No need for the sir, Nick, I told him. It's Chris. Dana says you were best man at his wedding. I hadn't actually spoken to his fiancée. I got that detail from the file. That's where you two met, yeah? That's correct, he said briskly. It's good, I said. You guys got a tight team down there. You all go way back and have each other's backs. Right, Carlos? Montoya looked up at the camera in surprise. I was glad I had his attention. I wasn't too worried about Paulson and Mackenzie based on what I'd learned. They had plenty of attachment and investment in the world. And Solomon, for her participation in moving the lid two inches, was tied up. It was Montoya I thought would be the weak link. Still, the fascination that the other two displayed for the damned lid had me worried. I could see that it was far worse than I thought. When did you fall in with these guys, Carlos? I pressed. Carlos walked casually across the chamber, gazing away from the lid. But seemingly without knowing it, his feet brought him right to the box, and he found himself caressing its horn. As one of the mercenaries barked at him, he started in surprise like one roused from a dream and gazed at his own hand in horror. The soldier promised to shoot him several times dead if he so much as put a pinky on the box again. Carlos was trembling now, and I think he was trying not to cry. The file says you joined the team in 2015 for the first time, I said calmly. Yeah, he said, but then he corrected himself. I mean, no, it must have been 2014. It was Caracas. It was another intentional error. My bad, I said. The file does say 2014. And how did you uh, get in with Paulson and McKenzie? Bad fucking luck, he said and laughed grimly. Yes. Montoya was going to be trouble. I felt pretty good about the rent-a-soldiers. They could be expected to possess a certain level of discipline and loyalty that civilians might not. As long as they kept their shit together, their guns would help the civilians keep their shit together, I hoped. Until extraction could be effected, either voluntarily or by force. Mackenzie ran his hand through his hair and began to pace, more agitated. Montoya walked over to the wall and rested his head against it. God damn it! One of the rent-a-soldiers shouted out of nowhere. This guy had been quiet the whole time until now. It was harder to tell the soldiers apart in the video feed, but I believe that this one was Ojeda. Cristobal Ojeda. He broke. He went on as he paced around the chamber, shaking his rifle for emphasis, shouting, What's the worst thing that could be in this fucking box? Do you all believe in fairy tales? I say we just open the damn thing and be done with it, and then we can all go home and forget this fucking thing. Check yourself, the ranking mark threatened. You ain't paid for your opinions. Don't you see? Montoya told him, holding out his hands as if pleading for his life. The very fact that we all feel this damned desire to open the lid proves there is something wicked about this box, that the myths are, to some extent, true. And if the curse of the desire is true, then the curse of opening it... He trailed off. Who here wants to open it? The soldier went on, raising his hand high and challenging the room with his gaze. Put your fucking hand down, the ranking soldier, Fines, growled. We have our orders, and that includes making sure no one 
opens the damned box. You got that. No one opens that fucking lid. He said the last part, mimicking the room-scanning challenge his comrade had just issued. He turned again on Ojeda. You think I don't want to open the fucking thing just like you? Fuck right I do. But am I going to? Fuck no. And neither are you. Got it? As if thoughtlessly, Montoya caressed the horn of the lid again. And the soldier who had threatened him, Gunderson, I think, barked at him again, this time holding the rifle on him. Montoya backed up with raised hands. The ranking soldier, Fines, commanded Gunderson to stand down, but then pointed a threatening finger at Montoya before saying several times over, We're cool. It's good. We're all cool. It doesn't feel very cool in here, Mackenzie muttered. Fines put his hand on Mackenzie's shoulder for a second and said, which is why we're all going home to air conditioning shortly. Careful, Carlos, Solomon said bitterly. You'll end up tied to this crate with the other untrustables. Or dead like Dimitri, Montoya muttered. His face was directed at Fines, and I imagined he was trying to burn a hole in his head with his eyes. How are we ever going to sleep again if we don't know what's in it? Paulson wondered spontaneously. Being that we might never sleep or wake again if we do open it. Best that we don't, Fines told him. Fuck! Paulson swore, and he put his hands on his hips and paced. Meanwhile, Mackenzie was kicking the wall at the edge of the frame. What do you think's gonna happen if we open it? Gunderson wondered at Fines. His tone was innocently curious. Ojeda glanced between the two, suddenly interested. Don't know, don't care, not gonna find out. Fines answered confidently. Fines was a fucking godsend to have on the ground. I needed to jump back in and try to direct the conversation. Hey guys, Chris Miller here again, I said. Look, we're all masters of our own decisions here. And just because we feel a certain way, it doesn't mean we have to act a certain way. This is just the same as any time you've been tempted to misbehave in the past. Just worse. You all can get through this. We just need you to start moving toward the extraction site. I promise you that as soon as you do, you'll feel much, much better. And this will all be over. And it just starts with a few steps toward the door. It feels like... Paulson said slowly. If we leave, we won't ever have the chance to open it again, and... I mean, I don't want to open it. I do, but I don't. But something about losing the chance forever is just horrifying. I understand, I said. I did understand, but I wish Paulson hadn't decided to voice his feelings. Look, I said again. But Montoya interrupted. It's like an itch, just under the skin. It's such a, a, a visceral feeling. It's not like curiosity. I mean, there's that too, but... God. It's more like being starving and having a fucking Big Mac sitting right in front of you. They were opening up into commiserating confessionals. You see this in group situations when a group of people sharing a prohibited aim tentatively begin to try and normalize that aim, shifting from, I know we shouldn't do this, but, to, well, if we all feel that way, maybe we should, through the establishment of consensus. You see it in lynch mobs. This was exactly what we didn't need, but how could I stop them from talking about the foremost thing in their minds? the horrible obsession with the box that had infected them. 
We are not opening shit, Fines declared. I know how much you all want to. Believe me, I do too. But no one's opening that damned box. Look, I said, I'm just asking you for this favor. To have faith for a moment that as soon as you walk out of there, this will all go away and you won't care in the least anymore about the box. It's not really you, but something has happened to you to make the box feel more important than it is. You just have to remember that. You are only a few steps from the door, and from there it's a short trip to the extraction site. And you all go home happy and healthy. You forget about this thing. You look back and say, Jesus, thank God we didn't give in and open the damned box. You look at your friends and family and shake your head and smile, thinking, I'm so damn glad we left that thing alone. It starts with simply stepping out that door. Come on, Fine said. We're moving. Let's do it. Brandishing his assault rifle, lest anyone forget it, he waved at the door and, so very reluctantly, they all started to mill toward the exit. Ojeda unbound Solomon and escorted her toward the door. The soldiers fell in behind the researchers, hurting them. Ojeda took a long farewell look at the lid until Gunderson elbowed him. Fines had to shout some more and continue waving his gun to get them moving. We're already late for our bird, he barked. Move it! Move it! Move it! Grudgingly, they all stacked up at the door. I was hopeful. I was terrified. I, the expert crisis coach, was afraid to speak lest I ruin the moment. But I had to keep the positive reinforcement going. You'll all feel better and be safe and sound on your way home shortly, folks, I said. Just keep that in mind. It's almost over. Ojeda and Montoya couldn't pry their eyes from the lid. Solomon caught their gaze and followed it and got lost herself. Fines continued to bark. None of them were listening. Neither was I. I could feel the teased resolution beginning to dissolve, and my gut sank like a rock as Ojeda fell out of line and wandered back to the center of the chamber. Montoya took a few steps after him. Fines yelled and readied his rifle, though keeping the barrel lowered, for now. Montoya reacted by raising his hands and taking a step back from the lid. Mackenzie took up yelling at Ojeda from Fines, marching toward Ojeda with a red face, and Ojeda sparred with him verbally in return, until each was berating the other in turn across the box with both hands planted on the lid. When Mackenzie looked down and saw that his hands had stopped with a grip on the horns, he let go and stumbled backwards in horror. A gunshot rang and ran all of our blood cold. Everyone's eyes bolted to the door into which returned Fines, who had stepped out to fire into the air and was now berating them again. Gunderson punched Ojeda's arm, trying to break his entrancement, but in a moment both stared stupidly at the lid. Ojeda gripping two horns and Gunderson resting a palm on the surface. Ojeda began to push the lid aside, at which Solomon charged over to him and chewed him out from his shoulder. Fines pointed his assault rifle at Ojeda. I was shouting into the mic, ignored. Fines got in Ojeda's face and forced him to back away from the lid. Ojeda appeared to meet his eyes with defiance. Meanwhile, Mackenzie was asking Gunderson to take his hands off the lid. But Polson and Solomon drew near it at the same time like insects to the lamplight until they too caressed the edges of the lid. Fines, turning from Ojeda, barked at them to step back from the lid. Polson and Solomon complied, raising their hands. While Fines was distracted, Ojeda resumed his mission of shifting the heavy lid. Gunderson pleaded at his shoulder, 
taking the lid by its horns and pulling it aside with clunky grinding of stone on stone. Solomon and Mackenzie grabbed Ojeda and tried to pry him from the lid. Fine's intention returned to Ojeda, and he marched up and barked in Ojeda's face, Solomon and Mackenzie parting to let him. Meanwhile, Gunderson had his hands on the lid, and Montoya was trying to talk him back from it. Gunderson looked sick, and he shoved Montoya back with his elbow. Finally, a rifle discharged. The next I knew, Ojeda fired a burst at Fines, killing him, and then Mackenzie and Paulson, who were trying to stop him. Gunderson spun and killed Ojeda, but not before Ojeda could return a sloppy spray of bullets. That perforated Gunderson's gut, as well as Montoya's, who still stood by him. Ojeda fell. Somewhere along the way, Solomon caught a bullet in the leg, apparently, and she sat weeping and pressing on her leg on the floor beside the half-opened ancient box. Solomon cried, and then she wailed, rocking over her bent leg, casting gazes around the room as if they were necessary to remind herself that everything that just happened was real. Montoya moaned from the floor, and I wasn't sure Gunderson was alive until he started screaming. Solomon pulled herself over to Montoya, and then to Gunderson. Each went into shock and, in silence, died. During what happened next. Sarah Solomon, weeping uncontrollably, crawled to the lid and placed her hands on the horns. I began trying to tell her that the extraction team would be there in... I looked to the regional director for the estimate. I didn't finish the sentence because Sarah Solomon threw her strength into the lid. I saw the lid slide, grindingly, and slide again. It tipped and fell off, propped against the box on the floor. Sarah had herself propped over the contents with her arms on the edge. Her sobs fell silent. And then she laughed. Is this a fucking joke? She creaked. Is this fucking, fucking doll parts? That's a baby's head. She was no longer laughing. I could see in the camera feed, Sarah jerked back from the opening suddenly. At first, I didn't see the cause, but in a moment, some of the pinkish material that was folded up in the box began to rise up. A long, fleshy trunk topped with a little orb that Sarah had believed was a baby's head. Sarah scooted backwards across the room, and a second such thing rose from the box beside the first. They looked like pink taffy, long and smooth. The heads were just small pink balls. As they stepped from the tub, I could see bodies that were so tall and narrow. Sarah was screaming, backed against the wall. She saw Gunderson's rifle and began crawling for it, keeping her eyes on the creatures stepping from the tub. They were babies. They were like very tall fucking babies, roughly six foot tall but not proportionally wide, just as wide at the shoulders and thick of limb as a chubby infant, but tall. The faces were exactly those of babies, but without any life, any emotion. Two more came out after them. The first two, once fully poised on those skinny, almost cylindrical, fleshy legs, raised their arms halfway, as if half-reaching for Solomon and, apparently, having found their footing. They proved how swift they could be. 
running without moving their arms from that half-raised pose right for Solomon. Solomon screamed for minutes while they did things to her we would later find to be typical for the creatures, though I couldn't see what transpired clearly at the time. Thank God. Meanwhile, more and more poured from the opening, the bottomless opening into the bedrock, rising up like pink stalks and taking stumbling steps into the chamber. The idle ones gravitated quickly to the corners and walls, lining up facing them, inches away, motionless. Once the corners and the walls were full, they overflowed from the chamber out into the world. The tall babies broke out into the world and spread quickly, always finding ways to hop great distances and unbreachable seas, stowed in boats and planes, faces to the wall in unsearched corners, or folded up in luggage and crates and parcels. The supply of them was effectively endless. We saw them coming fresh from the cavern as long as the camera remained live, which was about a week from that day. It was 2 a.m. when I saw one in the flesh. They love the night, and they love corners and walls. As I came into the kitchen for a drink, I detected the flesh color from the corner of my eye by the washer down the half-lit corridor of the laundry room. It just stood there, face to the wall, idle, pulsing subtly with its breathing, about six foot tall and bald and soft. Slowly its eyes turned to me. So, Matt, have you ever read Stephen King's On Writing backwards to get the hidden satanic messages? That doesn't even make sense. It was a huge inspiration to my fiction writing. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of Stephen King, and I've never heard anything like that, so... So because you believe you know everything about Stephen King, it can't exist, is what you're telling me? Well, I didn't say that, but I've just never heard... I bet you've never seen Stephen King's butthole. What? No. Does that mean Stephen King's butthole doesn't exist? I don't... Oh, wow. There's an interesting philosophical dilemma. If no one has ever seen Stephen King's butthole, does it exist? Is it round and puckery, or is it square and made of wood? Is it real or unreal? Is it actual or merely hypothetical until observed? It's like Schrodinger's Stephen King's butthole. Okay. Please never talk to me again. God. Now I feel like writing a horror story. I wonder if he's ever met the filth licker. Have you seen this house? I bet he has an akaname in every bathroom instead of a bidet. Hey, Matt, where are you going? I'd rather go and look at that scratch-and-sniff Holocaust book than pursue this conversation any further. Oh, okay. But take my word for it. You'll want to read Chapter 237 of On Writing Backwards if you want the secret to having an Ithskygian filth-skidding anemone-faced seafloor feeder for a writing muse. It's helped me tremendously. Oh, how his frothing consultation has refined my prose. I'm going to go play Rochambeau with the River Beast until I stop feeling sick inside. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was The Horror at Cool Balat by me, Brett Norwood. 
Moral support was by Matt Cummins. Music was Me Too. Waffles and glory, monster baiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, pull your head out of Stephen King's butthole. And second, be sure you are subscribed and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute and helps us out a great deal. If you don't know what to say in your review, you know, just say, Waffles and glory. Enough said. Stay tuned to Monster Porn to set that je ne sais quoi romantic mood for your Halloween. Make it a special Samhain that your significant other and your other's other and your shadow other will never, ever, ever forget. Follow Monster Porn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you like that sort of thing, and visit the official Monsterbater Mercantile at monsterpornpodcast.com store. That's it! Until the shark angels come, stay weird, and Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. Okay, but take my word for it. You'll want to read chapter 666 of On Writing Backwards if you want the secret to having an... Ith- what the fuck did I write? Ith... Ithgigian? Ithgigian. Yeah. <laughs> if you want the secret to having... I'd rather go look at that scratch and sniff Holocaust book than pursue perfume perfume this conversation any further. Okay, please never talk to me again. God, now I feel like writing a horror story. Ding!